If you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. I have been for years playing at weddings mm-hmm. and performing at them. And my wife and I, she sings, I play. You guys are great. Thanks. It's a yeah. great wedding act. Anybody who's planning a wedding and is looking for a live band, call Ed the Protestant. The, the, uh, the price just went up. <laughs> um, we don't do it anymore. It's, it's a little, uh, it's, it's frustrating. Uh, but you've, perfor- you've uh, presided at them too when you were a Protestant minister. And I know we've talked about the, uh, the uh, frustrations of, of all of this. And there are many. Anyway. But that's a different thing. I would meet with these, we would meet with these people, usually young couples, whatever, and talk about music and what they wanted and all that. But in the course of the conversation, it would eventually become uh, apparent to me, not because we brought it up or anything, but just from things they said, that they were already living together, which was, which I didn't like to see. But then I felt all old fashioned, like, like, what's, what's the matter with me? Oh, you know, you kids get off my lawn, right? (laughs) Um, and, you know, I see, I've seen it, I, I, I would assume that you see Catholics, young people and Catholic Protestant people, I guess who you'd call nominal, not really serious about it, uh, doing the same things. I wouldn't think there was a statistical big difference or anything. Maybe there is. But the thing that I see is the, a difference in how the Protestant church, churches deal, the Protestant world deals with this and the Catholic Church deals with it, at least doctrinally. And what I see is the uh, Protestant churches uh, fracturing over this. And now there's a new denomination. We just had that happen in our town over these issues, issues of sex and gender and, and morality and all that. And it looks to me like the Protestant Church is getting pretty schizophrenic about this, but the, the Catholic Church is, is holding the line. That, that's how it appears to me, even though there might be some rumblings is that let's yeah. can we talk about that yeah okay yeah so let's start by stipulating something i don't have any idea i wouldn't even know how to measure this what the percent relative percentage of catholics versus protestants who disobey their church's teaching right right and we all do to some degree i mean i i go to confession because right. i commit sins and but to some degree we are all going to vary in our faithfulness and adherence to the teachings of our church. In some cases, that's because we disagree with it. We flagrantly just refuse to do it. In some cases, because we stumble and fall, you know, succumb to temptation or whatnot. Now, if you asked me what are, are Catholics more or less likely as a percentage to disobey the teachings of their church with respect to sexual morality, I I wouldn't know how to measure that, what kind of statistical thing. So let's just stipulate up front that there are plenty of unfaithful Catholics and unfaithful Protestants, unfaithful Christians. However, what you're driving at is super important, and that is 
how the church responds to these issues. So let's rewind the clock back about 50 or 60 years. In the late mid, mid-1960s or so, Western civilization underwent something that's been called the sexual revolution. Right. Right. So since time immemorial or whatever, or at least uh, for the last 2,000 years, or the prior 2,000 years, Western civilization had certain sexual moralities that were held in common. Marriage, the preservation of marriage, men and women, the notion that marriage is not, if not strictly for the production of children, at least that's a normal byproduct, right? Right. Are, am I trying to say that everybody for the last 2,000 years was practiced strict sexual, you know, moral practices? Well, of course not. There are always people who committed fornication and adultery and had children out of wedlock. Right. That's always been the case. But at least, right, there, was a, there were norms or civilizational norms. And in the 1960s and 70s, those norms were turned upside down on their head. Yeah. And, and other people have... And maybe some other time we'll talk about these, you know, written extensively about how that came about, what drove that. Uh, one of the things was the technological production of the birth control pill, which in a sense decoupled sexuality right. from reproduction. Right. And, and then just the mores and practices and culture of Western civilization changed. And so the sexual revolution changed people's attitudes towards sex, their understandings of sex, their understandings of marriage. And, you know, that had all kinds of repercussions and continues to have repercussions in terms of the understanding of marriage, the understandings of human relationships, the understanding of sexuality with respect to homosexuality and gender yep. and all these things, right? So essentially the world turned upside down, right? Yep. Now the question that you're driving at is how did the church or churches respond mm -hmm. to the world turning upside down in the sexual revolution, right. right? Again, not saying that there aren't unfaithful Catholics and unfaithful Protestants and whatever, but what we're saying is how did the church respond? And I do think that you're right, that the response of the Catholic church has been somewhat different, considerably different, than the response of most Protestant churches. Okay? Yeah. So let's talk about a little bit about yeah. that, about how and why for the listeners. So one of the landmark moments of this whole thing was in 1967-68 when Pope Paul VI released an encyclical declaring from the, his teaching magisterium, an encyclical called Humanae Vitae. Okay, the propagation of human life, in which he affirmed the 2,000-year-old um, prohibition against contraception. Mm -hmm. Now, in the 1960s, the birth control pill became widely available, right? It was invented, became widely available. It, I'm not saying it caused the sexual revolution, but it certainly accelerated it because, you, again, you decoupled Right, sex and sexual intercourse from the consequences. The consequences are the and so so there was enormous pressure, and and pretty much most of the Protestant world jumped all on board the birth control bill and family planning and all this kind of stuff. So most Protestant churches never had a prohibition 
you know, many of them did not have a prohibition against contraception prior to that. But once the birth control pill came out in the 1960s, most Protestant churches did not prohibit it. Right. And it became an, an established part of it. And, and certainly there were very few Protestant churches that said there's any kind of a prohibition on, on birth control. Right. However, okay, 67, 68, I think it was, Pope Paul VI comes out in a very controversial decision. It was controversial within the Catholic Church and said, nope, the church from time immemorial is taught that contraception is prohibited. And we can get into why that is, right? right? But it's prohibited because it undoes the, it, it delinks, it undoes the purpose of, of sex. And you, one thing you got to understand about uh, Catholic moral doctrine, or actually really Catholic philosophy or philosophical theology, is that what's essential to Catholicism, and, and a lot of this is based in the teachings of Thomas Aquinas and people like them, is that when we want to understand the thing, what a thing is, partly we understand what its purpose is, what it's for. Right. And that when you decouple what a thing is for mm-hmm. uh, or what a thing's purpose is from how it's being used, you, you in a sense, damage it. So we're talking into these microphones, right? Right. Now, there's no reason I can't take this microphone and go out and you know, outside right now and, and, and shovel snow with a microphone. I mean, right. you know, thou might not be very effective at it, right. but if I was shoveling snow with a microphone, I would be using the microphone for a purpose for which it was not created. Right. And I would in a sense be undermining or damaging or abusing the essence of the microphone. The end. The end. And we're the telos, right? I mean, the, the end, the purpose right. of what the microphone is. And so things are, in a sense, defined by that. We're sitting on chairs. The essence of chairness, Thomas Aquinas would say, is it's something that I can sit on. I certainly no reason I can't, you know, use the chair and put it on the roof of my car and I don't know, you know, whatever. But that's not what the essence of chairness is, okay? I know we're kind of winding around here, but it comes back to this notion of what the essence or the purpose or the telos of sexuality is. So Paul VI says, look, uh, from time immemorial, the church has understood that sex and sexuality is a gift, right? And it's a gift that within the context of marriage, which goes back to God's creation purposes when he made Adam and Eve and, constructed and instructed them to be fruitful and multiply, that, that sex has a purpose that is intrinsically tied to marriage and at least the opening of children. So Catholic morality teaches on this, that sex in a sense has two purposes. It has a reproductive purpose, certainly. Right. And it also has what's called, uh, the Catholic church calls a unitive purpose. So it brings the husband and wife together in closeness and intimacy, and it can produce children. So the thing is, is from time immemorial, because there were contraceptive practices all the way back to the ancient world. There were various kinds of Herbal things and right. other kinds of weird things people did to prevent contraception. And the church has always said, once you do that, you've taken that essence of what sex is, the unitive and reproductive functions, and you've begun to, to mess with the reason God gave us this. Does that make sense? Right. Yes, absolutely. And so uh, Paul VI prohibits contraception. And to this day, that stands. Catholic, the Catholic church teaches that to use birth control or to use contraception within the context of marriage even, is a sin. 
is a mortal sin. So uh, now how many Catholics practice that, obey that? Well, I don't know. I don't go into the confessional. Right. I know many don't. But we are not as Catholics to utilize that because the notion is that the sexual act between husband and wife should be, should be unitive and open to the possibility of life. Otherwise, you abuse it. Now, in that document, Humanity Day, 1968, Paul VI warns what would happen if sex was disconnected from its intended purposes. And one of the things he says is it will go badly for women. Because when that disconnect happens, women will become treated as objects mm-hmm. and sexual objects only for the pleasure of men. Right. Right? And so he lays out, it will lead to the degradation of women. It will lead to the explosion of pornography. It will lead to the dissolution of marriages, the breakup of families. It will lead to, the, to, to, to children being disconnected. As, and he, he, basically, he basically lays out, prophetically lays out all the harms of the sexual revolution. Now, that's 1968, and so the Catholic Church has preserved that. It has stood against that, and as time has gone on, and the sexual revolution has advanced, and it has now stopped being a revolution and become the new normal, the Catholic Church still stands and says, no, sex is, uh, in, is intrinsic to our uh, humanity. It is given to us as a gift, and its intended purpose is to be unitive and open to reproduction within the context of matrimony. And any use of it outside of that is a misuse and abuse of God's gifts, Mm -hmm. which has serious consequences, okay? Now, this has produced no amount of howling and screaming and everything else, right? Right. And and there's a couple of other things I want to say that become consequences of that. And this is, you know, always a dangerous thing to talk about because you can get your podcast yanked, Right. right? But let's talk about homosexuality. One of the things that was predicted at the time was that if you, the, the, the launch of contraception and the birth control pill, now I know that this is like, a, sounds crazy, right? And it sounds counterintuitive, but that the birth control would lead inevitably to a spread of homosexuality really? and gay marriage. And you go, well, how does that work? And you go, because once you began to disconnect sexuality from the context of natural marriage, right? Right? and reproduction, sex became, in a sense, recreational. It became something that individuals engage in merely for pleasure, but not in the context of reproduction. And it became, un- it became undefined. Yeah, and so what happens is, and we see this because, and it was interesting, when we had the run-up to our same-sex marriage and all of the decisions in the last 20 years of, of our culture, right, the Oberfell decision and all this and states voting for it and everything else, one of the arguments that, was, that has been consistently advanced or was advanced by the pro-gay marriage side is that, well, why, if sex is just something recreational that people engage in for, you know, merely pleasure or casually, and they would say, look at heterosexuals. They run around and they have multiple partners and they swing and they do this and they that, right? And they right. swipe left or right or however any of that, that, that works, right? And they're, everybody's out doing it. Why would you then prohibit, what was the logic of preventing homosexuals from doing that? Right. And if, 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 sex, if marriage is not connected to sex, 
right? And this was the argument of the pro-gay marriage people. Or excuse me, if marriage is not per- connected to reproduction, right? and this was the argument of pro-gay marriage people, sex has been decoupled from reproduction, then what's the, what's the logic of restricting right. homosexual couples? If marriage is nothing, just people who want to live together begin and enjoy each other's company and buy a house right. together and all that, why prohibit gays from doing that? And that was the logic. Unless there's something intrinsic to marriage right. that requires a man and a woman to live a natural life, you know, geared right. towards openness towards life and the potential of children. So what I'm saying is that this sexual revolution, which has become really not a revolution, but the new normal over the last 50, 60 years, um, has become the new normal of society. And then the, the churches, Protestant, Catholic, whatever, Christianity has had to decide now how to respond right. to this new sexual morality and new sexual practices and this new culture. And the Protestant, now I'm not saying, hear me clearly, I'm not saying that every Protestant agrees with all of this, right? right? And I'm not saying that every single Protestant church agrees with all of this, because they don't. But by and large, the Protestant world has been more tepid in its response to the sexual revolution and has less of an argument to make, because once it conceded contraception, once it conceded this, conceded this, conceded this, it in a sense lost its arguments in favor of what you might call traditional marriage and a traditional understanding of sexuality. Whereas I think what you're getting at is the Catholic church. And again, there are many disobedient Catholics. That's not the point I'm making, but the point I am making is that the church itself has held the line on teaching what the purpose of mankind is, what our humanity is, how sexuality fits into our humanity, how marriage fits into that, how sexuality fits into marriage. And because of that, right, uh, the, church, the church still is a witness, and in many cases a prophetic witness, like Jeremiah in the Old Testament, against the practices of our culture. Yeah, you know, this, it, it reminds me of you know, some weird connection here. Um, in high school math, teacher gave us a problem and said, what's the answer to this? And we, we kept coming up, everybody kept coming up with different answers. And finally, he, finally he said, can anybody spot the problem in this equation? And, and, uh, he put an equation on the board and, uh, I think he proved that two equaled one. And so we were all trying to pull it apart, you know? And finally he said, finally he put, none of us got it. He pointed it out. There was a one point that we divided by zero and, uh, he said, dividing by zero is undefined. That might sound funny, but it's undefined. It doesn't, it, you can get a different answer every time. And if you want to make your equation say what you want it to make, put a division by zero in there. And that's what this reminds me of. Once you decouple um, sex from its actual end, the, the purposes that God, then you can make it, you can say that it means anything you want to say that it means, and nobody can argue, you know? So in the 1970s, Actually, it really began earlier than that, um, if you really want to go back. But in the 1970s, uh, late 1970s, early 80s, Pope John Paul II uh, from Poland yep. uh, began to write. And the, his writings in this were rooted in his ministry 10 and 20 years earlier with college students. Because uh, he, he used to minister to university students in Krakow, Poland uh, when he was a priest. 
And, uh, but he worked with college students and he worked with young people and he began to develop teachings. In fact, it, it, it's kind of legendary that he used to go on kayak trips with them and camping trips up in the mountains and things like that and, and sit with them and talk about their concerns. And, you know, the precursors of the sexual revolution were starting to stir in the 50s and 60s, even, you know, uh, in the communist bloc where Poland was at the time. And he developed this, this body of teaching, which then in the 1980s, he, as Pope, began to unpack and publish as something called theology of the body. And to really understand Catholicism on this, you've got to understand John Paul II's theology of the body. To summarize it real quickly, the theology of the body says that we are, you know, physical embodied beings. And we've talked about this before. So what it means to be a human being is a human soul and a human body that are unified. Our bodies are not disconnected. Like we're not souls just happening to inhabit bodies like, like hermit crabs with a shell. Our body is essential to who we are. And the theology of the body says when God makes us, when he scooped the dust of the earth and formed us and breathed life into it, our the physical aspects of our body are part of who we are. Mm -hmm. So therefore our maleness or our femaleness is not something that is extrinsic. It is not something that is extraneous to our identity. It is part of our identity. I am born a male. And it's not that I just have a male body. It is I am a male. I am a man. That's who I am. And you can't disconnect and that our bodies, the other insight he had is that our bodies are insights because God designed them into who, who we are and what we're made to be. So man and woman are made for each other. They're made to come together in marriage. They're made to uh, be open to life in children. Not every couple will have children, right? Because right. some are in, you know, incapable. But that, that marriage is unitive and open to reproduction if, if, if God allows and that this is part of who we are, what we're made to be. We're made, you know, the, the marriage predates the fall, right? Marriage and the family predate the organization of governments, right? Right. We had marriages and families before we had governments within the history of creation yeah. and salvation. And so rather than the government being supreme and marriage being secondary, we were made as human beings to live in families and to come together in marriage as man and woman. Now, because of that teaching by John Paul II, right? A couple of implications of that for what's in the news today. The first is that, and there's a lot of misunderstanding about this when it comes to homosexuality and homosexual practice. You know, part of the thing about homosexual practice or homosexual marriage in terms of Catholicism is that it can't ever really be marriage. Right. Now, Two men can go down to a courthouse or go to a Protestant church and they can have a marriage ceremony and they can sign papers and they can own property and do all that. When the Catholic church won't recognize it, it doesn't recognize it because it hates, you know, homosexual wants to exclude homosexual marriage. It's that homosexual marriage is in a sense an oxymoron, like jumbo shrimp, right? right? right. It's a nonsensical statement. Because a marriage is intrinsically, matrimony is intrinsically a human man and a human woman in their maleness and in their femaleness coming together 
for unitive and reproductive purposes to be open to the formation of life. Right. And that is impossible. That can't be. Right. Two women can live together. Two women can share a house. Two women can have, uh, uh, perform sexual acts with each other, but they can't ever really be a marriage because the definition of marriage or what marriage is or what God created marriage to be is a man and a woman coming together in the ways that we describe. So it has an implication for that. It has also an implication in the theology of the body by John Paul II with gender ideology because I can't disconnect my gender from my body. Right. You know? Uh, and I, this is the kind of stuff that'll get your podcast yanked off iTunes. So if we are not on iTunes after this episode, you'll know why. But look, you know, you, 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 if you take a man and you cut off his penis, you don't create a woman, you create a man that has a penis cut off. Right. Right. I mean, and, and that's because intrinsically what that means, right. I mean, I could, I could go and probably we go on for half an hour about this right. and explain the theology and the philosophy and all this kind of stuff. But again, probably going to get yanked off iTunes for you talking about it. But right. look, that's, that's the reality. Um, or I, I, Apple podcast or Spotify or whatever, where you're listening to us. But uh, look, the Catholic church has held the line and it hasn't held the line because it wants to be old fashioned. It has held the line on sexual morality because it's holding the line on our understanding of the human person mm-hmm. and that sexuality, marriage, reproduction, gender, all of these things are part of an intrinsic understanding of the human person. So back to the original question, when the church has to respond to all these cultural changes where the society says today, um, sex outside marriage is no big deal. Premarital sex is no big deal. Premarital cohabitation is no big deal. Homosexual practice is no big deal. Homosexual marriage is no big deal. Gender ideology is no big deal. Why is the Catholic Church old-fashioned and standing against those things? The Catholic Church's response is because it, has, it, be, because it can't, because those things that you're saying, it's not just that we're committed to old-fashioned ideas. We have an understanding of the human person that is rooted right. in scripture, rooted in, tr- in, in, in magisterial tradition, apostolic tradition, and that that understanding of the human person, um, the things that we, you're, I was just saying, those things are impossible. Right. Right? Right. And, and, and so, so certainly people can go do those things, but the church is incapable of saying, redefining what a human being is. It's incapable of redefining what uh, marriage is. It's incapable of redefining what gender is. To do that, right? It, it, so the church has stood against these. And because the, the Catholic church has this um, foundation of thousands of years of magisterial apostolic teaching um, of, of scripture, its response to the sexual revolution has been um, to not change its positions and under a great deal of pressure for many people to do so. Whereas Protestantism with different sort of philosophical foundations and different sort of theological foundations has, in a sense, more caved 
to these redefinitions of sexuality and humanity mm -hmm. because it doesn't, in a sense, have the philosophical, theological bulwark right, right. or arguments to, to stand against that. Am I making sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yes, you are. It's, um, this is something that I could personally work on. The Catholic Church is giving me something I can, I can do myself, something I can control, something I'm in charge of, something I can do uh, in, in an immoral world. Uh, and, and I like that. I, uh, I'm fascinated. This is, uh, I've dug into this a little bit uh, offline, and the, the more I read, the more I like it. Well, you know, you're getting at something about personal morality. So, and, and this is kind of a, I don't want to say a chip on my shoulder, but a thing that, that really kind of is a chip on my shoulder or I find, you know, really weird. So from time immemorial, you know, the teachings of the church have been, the teachings of Jesus have been that I am respond. I have a great deal of personable accountability and moral responsibility for the things that I do, right? So I, I can decide whether to give to the poor or not give to the poor. I can decide how to spend my money to some degree. I can decide what to do with my body. I, I can decide right now to go out and, you know, have some casual sexual encounter or not. I can decide you know, to have an affair or I can decide to do this or I can decide. And I have a high degree of control over that, right? I have to almost total, a total control over whether I do that or not do it. And so traditional morality, traditional Christian morality, Catholic morality is based on the things for which you do have a high degree of control. So when I go into the confessional, I can say I was, uh, I was cruel to somebody. I can say I misused my sexuality and engaged in sexually immoral acts. I was not a good steward of my money, right? I, I mean, those are things I can confess because they're things I can do. What seems weird to me is that in light of these sexual revolution and these changes we're talking about, that sort of progressive contemporary thought is that I have less culpability or responsibility for those things, like my sexuality. So there's no harm, no foul if I go live with somebody before marriage. There's no harm, no foul if I have, you know, anonymous, if I have, you know, sexual, right, uh, right you know, whatever, casual sex. There's no harm, no foul if I do those things. Um, God doesn't care about that. But he's extremely concerned about my carbon footprint. Or right. he's extremely concerned <laughs> right. about my, how complicit I am in whether the governments of the world are going to, you, you know, gather to fight systemic something or other, right? Right. Which, which seems an inversion. So in other words, what I'm being told is that God doesn't care so much about the things for which I have a high degree of control and responsibility right. or personality, but he has an enormous amount of concern and holds me very responsible for things which I have very little control over, which makes me perpetually guilty and, and, and complicit in the sins of the systems of the world. But, you know, if I go out tonight and hook up with somebody in a bar, God doesn't care. 
Right. And that just seems weird to me. It seems like the serpent's lies to me that, mm-hmm. that what God wants of you, you know, is God doesn't care about this, but he is super concerned about that and you should feel guilty. So anyway. Well, while you've been saying this at the end, I, I found this quote on my, uh, I have uh, on my on my iPhone. I have this notes app, and I have about three thousand notes, and I have to dig through. But I use the search function because, yeah. Anyway, I found this quote. Um, might be uh, applicable here. In a nutshell, progressive Christians tend to believe that humanity's greatest problem is an existential estrangement from each other that results in oppression. This redefining of what the church has historically believed to be humanity's greatest problem has produced a doctrine of victimhood that replaces the biblical doctrine of a personal rebellion against a holy God. As a consequence, salvation is solely found in things like feeding the poor, combating racism, and affirming any and all sexual identities, reversing the power dynamics, and ironing out oppression. Yeah, that's, that, a, that's a real smart quote. Whoever said that, yeah, that's a pretty smart quote. I don't know who that, I don't, I don't know what it was. Well, a smart, a smart person. Um, look, I, I, we're getting, you know, near to the end of the episode here. So this is going to be something I have to take up another time. You know, the, I think I'd like to talk some other time about um, this incredible shift that took place or has taken place in our understanding of morality and moral theology. And, and it's the shift between responsibilities and rights. Mm-hmm. So let me just allude to this and maybe we'll do a whole episode on sure. it sometime, right? So traditional morality emphasized, and I'm going back to, you know, the 10 commandments, right? It emphasized my responsibilities. Honor your right. father and mother. Don't steal your neighbor's stuff. Don't, um, don't have sex with your neighbor's wife, right? right? You know, don't kill your neighbor. Those are responsibilities on me. And I am responsible, morally responsible for those actions. A shift occurred somewhere in the last hundred to 200 years from the morality being based on responsibilities to rights. So what we say is, I now have a right not to be murdered. I have a right not to have Mm. my donkey stolen. I have a right not to have you, uh, you know, do X, Y, Z to me, right? And when you do those things, you're guilty of violating my right to have them not done to me. Right. Which in some sense reduces my responsibility. It's an emphasis on rights rather than an emphasis on responsibility. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when I go into the confessional, the idea is, well, I'm guilty of violating somebody's right not to have their donkey stolen. You know, I violated my neighbor's right not to have me, you know, steal his car. Well, no, I stole his car and I committed, (laughs) right? And so, (laughs) right, I stole the dude's car and I have a responsibility before God not to steal people's cars, and I think that this sort of weird shift is part of this whole revolution that in a sense puts everything, you know, from a grammar standpoint, puts everything in the passive voice in a sense, right? It's not emphasizing my personal responsibility for what I do with my, with, for, for, take, for my own actions, 
my own actions with respect to my money, my own actions with respect to my neighbor, my own actions with respect to my sexual behaviors, whatever. I have, we have to get back to, to understanding, and this is I think what Catholicism does, is stressing this understanding of, of personal moral responsibility. And to the degree that that's been dissipated, and it's been dissipated at least, did that cause the sexual revolution? Is it a coincidence of the sexual revolution? Is it, is it right, is it a consequence of the sexual revolution? I don't know. But what I do know is that the world is very different today than it was 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago. And I think that progressive Protestant churches certainly have moved away from this notion of personal moral responsibility for your actions. The Catholic Church has held the line on those things, even if a lot of Catholics are disobedient to their church's right. teaching. Uh, good stuff, Greg. I have, I have two quick thoughts. Number one is, uh, thanks for introducing me to the word extrinsic. I never would have got there on my own. And uh, if we are indeed going to get kicked off the platforms, this opens up an entire new uh, vistas of... of um, of topics for us. Oh yeah. Well, we, well, we could, we could talk about all kinds of crazy stuff that just nobody would be listen. So. Right. <laughs> so we could, you know, invite people to the, to our, to our, uh, to, we could go on tour and we could just give, you know, private audiences. So if you would like to add Ed and I come over to your house and rant about things and you're serving right. dinner and a couple of drinks, we will, Ed and I will, will be happy to come to your house and well, rant about. We're, we're quick about it. Greg was a, a debating, uh, uh, whiz in college, I understand. So, so we'll just come over. You just give us a topic. Topic, and off the top of our heads, we'll pick a side. We'll pick sides in there and we'll be off. We'll rant for dinner yeah. and drinks. Right. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot, Eddie. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com.